You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. Good morning. My name is Brittany and I'm the one of the pastors on staff here. And if you're joining us for the first time today, we're very glad to have you. We know that like two thirds of our church is sick. So you're the more anointed group. No, um, you're the healthy ones today. Say thank you, Lord, for your health and wash your hands. Uh, a lot of you guys are watching online and we're sorry you couldn't be with us this morning, but we know that God is well, we prayed for your healing this morning. We know that God is about that work and he is doing that. So we're just going to trust that he will restore everyone this week and that we will all be back together for Feast and Friends next Sunday and our annual meeting. But if this is your first time with us, we're going through the whole Bible, the whole big old book. And back in December, we finally got to the New Testament. So I feel like if you're new with us, you got to skip like the hardest part, right? And you're here for the fun part. You, you're like sneaking into class late, but that's okay. I want to ask a question, however, about all of this that I think I probably already know the answer to. And if you're online, feel free to drop it in the chat. But out of the two books, Old Testament and New Testament, out of those two texts, which one do you prefer to read? If you prefer the Old Testament, throw a hand up. Wow. Dan, don't lie. I got a solid Johanna in the back right away, and I got Bob in the front. All right. How many of you prefer to read the New Testament? Literally everybody else. Well, I kind of a couple non-voters. If you're one of those people that's like, Bernie, I'm not going to choose. It's the whole Bible, and it's sacred. I didn't say that that wasn't true. I just said that some parts are easier and some parts are harder. And I think it's pretty easy to understand why the New Testament is preferable. The text itself is more of a narrative right? The Old Testament, you've got a lot of genealogies. You got You learn how to, like, you know, you're reading engineering plans on how to build a really big boat. You don't find that in the New Testament. It's mostly the storyline of the people of the first church. So you've got Jesus, and then you've got all of the things that happened right after him. It's also a much shorter amount of time, and it's a smaller geographic place. So it's just easier to keep your mind on all of the things that are happening. There's a repetition of characters. There's a repetition of places. The themes are the same. You're just covering a lot less in the New Testament. And frankly, that's easier for our brains to comprehend and read through. Um, but the thing is, we don't have a New Testament without the Old Testament. And they're one entirely interwoven, entirely interdependent story. And it's hard for us to enjoy the beauty of the New Testament without having done all of that work and going through the Old Testament and getting a really good grid for it. And the cool thing is we're going to go through the Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books serve as a really beautiful bridge, bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. As non-Jewish readers, and I don't know that we have anybody here that is Jewish, but as most of us are not, and as non-Jewish readers, we have a tendency to overlook so much of the subtleties that are woven into the text, right? There are hundreds of Old Testament references. There are so many subtle allusions and parallel narratives between Jesus and Old Testament leaders like David and Moses and even Adam. But because we are, our eyes are a bit untrained, culturally we're untrained, we tend to skip over all of that in the Gospels when really, if we read them right, it's like this beautiful interweaving kind of bridge. You should just use the example that we've got. It's this beautiful bridge that connects everything that we've just studied for the last two years with everything that we're about to go into. 
Because the truth is, when you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're not just reading Jesus's biography. What you're actually reading, I want you to envision this in your mind, is these four authors sitting down, and as they're penning Jesus's story, they're reading the Old Testament through the lens of Christ crucified. And so you're reading their revelation moments with God, where they're like, oh my goodness, and then Jesus was like Moses here. And this, this prophecy that we didn't even know was a prophecy about Jesus, that fills in with this part of his life. And so you're reading their moments of revelation as you're going through all of this. And, and their revelation is rooted in the Old Testament because that's their holy book. That's the only book that they had. And the cool thing about this is the more that we then understand and can appreciate how much of the Old Testament is in Jesus's story, the Bible then does the very thing it's supposed to do, which is become a place for us to connect with God's heart. We've been saying that all along, that God gave us this book, not just as an ethical text, not just to give us rules and regulations. He said, you are invited to meet with me here. This is how you, one of the ways you get to know me and connect with me, and it's a living and breathing document that continues to inspire us to know the character of God. And so this morning, we're going to dig into a little bit more of what Perla was, was talking about last week. This is a part two of the Gospels, if you will. And we're going to explore what that word actually means, because what does it mean? All right. Holy Spirit, thank you for the opportunity to be together online and in person. And I just ask for your revelation this morning, that you would take the very thing that you have penned and you would give us understanding so that we can connect with your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a lot of words that we use in church today, like prophet or apostle or even the word church, that you don't hear anyone talking about outside of the doors of this place. Right? When was the last time you heard the word apostle in a non-church context? When was the last time you heard the word, hmm? Oh, I was going to say, Bob, you have an example? Don't do that to me right now. You're in the front row. <clears throat> when was the last time you heard the word gospel? Or like, There's a whole bunch of words that we have taken, and they have become church words, but they never started that way. And gospel is actually one of them. We find it in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. <clears throat> in the Hebrew, it's the word baser. And in the Greek, it's the Hebrew, or it's in the Greek, it's the word euangelion. And both of these words are referenced in both the Old Testament, the New Testament, obviously Hebrew in the Old, Greek in the New. But they're used over and over again, and they mean gospel, or also translated, good news. But what kind of news? I get good news from people all the time. Hey, good news. My test results came back negative at the doctor. Hey, good news. I had a baby. Hey, good news. I got a great parking spot at church this morning. Hey, good news. The bills are playing later. Like good news can be a whole variety of things. And gospel, the gospel good news, Basser, Euangelion, is not just any good news. It's specifically political good news, right? We need to understand this because this is so important to understanding why this word was chosen. We find it in, like I said, Old Testament, New Testament, throughout. And I pulled one example from the Old Testament, but you could go on to Blue Letter Bible and pull up dozens more. In 2 Samuel 18, verses 19 to 20, it says, Then Zadok's son Ahimaaz said, Let me run to the king with the good news, the gospel, that the Lord has rescued him from his enemies. No, Job told him, it wouldn't be good news or gospel to the king that his son is dead. You can be my messenger another time, but not today. 
you know, messengers in the Old Testament, they didn't have Facebook, you know, they didn't have Twitter or X or whatever it is these days, whatever the kids are using. They didn't have CNN. There's no TV. The only way national news is going to be shared is through messengers. And occasionally they had very specific political news or gospel declarations. And it could have been about new laws that the king had issued. It could have been about royal successions. Oh, so-and-so's dead. This is the new king now. It happened like two years ago, but it's as quick as I could get here, right? It could have been about battles, both victories or even defeats, because defeats would mean that something was about to impact the people who were hearing the news. And so the gospel was always a political message, a political statement, a political announcement. And it begins to take on a new frame of reference for the Jews when we get to Isaiah. In Isaiah 50, verses 7 to 10, he has this prophecy about events that have not happened yet. And he says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the gospel. The good news, or specifically hear this, the political announcement or the gospel of peace and salvation. The good news or the political announcement that the God of Israel reigns, right? God is king, that announcement. And I'm going to continue. I want to read the rest of the verses there, but they're not going to be on the screen. Verse eight says, the watchmen shout and sing with joy for before their very eyes, they see the Lord returning to Jerusalem. Let the ruins of Jerusalem break into joyful song for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has demonstrated his holy power before all the eyes of the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the victory of the Lord. Isaiah had a hard job. You remember when we were in the prophets over the spring? There was not a lot of happy messages, right? They're preparing the people for the consequences that they're going to bear because they've rejected God. And one of the consequences Isaiah foresees is the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon. And so when it happens, it's absolutely catastrophic. And it's easy. Guys, we read Ezekiel. We read through all of the different prophets. We read through Jeremiah. We, we know the people who are walking through those moments. And it would have been so easy for them to spiral into hopelessness because their main city is destroyed, their temple is gone, and now they're living in a foreign nation with foreign people. And their ways are not going to be honored or celebrated there. And so these messages, specifically this one through Isaiah, become their hope. This gospel, this political statement that God is going to bring his peace and salvation, that God is going to establish himself as the king of the world, becomes the very thing they hang their hats on. They don't have anything else. The rug has been pulled out from under their feet. They can't rely on their economy. They can't rely on their kings. They can't even rely on their religious institution because all of that is gone. This gospel that God is going to come back and set everything right is the only thing that they have left as a nation to hold on to. And it's amplified by many of the other prophets, right? Isaiah is not the only one to say this. He kind of kicks it off and then a bunch of them just keep adding it on. They, they have these really hard messages and then like a verse or two at the end that say, but God is going to come back. The good news, the gospel, the political announcement that God has not left us or abandoned us, but he will reestablish his people in the future. Zephaniah 3.20 says, 
his iteration of the message is, on that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name, a name of distinction among all the nations of the earth. As I restore your fortunes before their very eyes, I, the Lord, have spoken. This is their hope. The gospel, not just any gospel, this specific political announcement kicked off by Isaiah is the hope of Israel. And we have to understand that as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that this is the very thing that the people are still hoping in because their fortunes are not any better than the exiled Jews. Yeah, they're back in the promised land, but they're under Roman occupation. We were talking about this on Wednesday night. We have a very hard time understanding how stressful and tense that would have been. But imagine a foreign power, take your pick, showed up and was everywhere in our towns with guns. And we were told to go about our business doing all the things we do, but everything we did was watched and judged. And we were also paying extra taxes. The people of Jesus's day were living in such painful oppression. And so they're still extremely focused on this gospel. They're desperate for it. They're actively waiting for it. The four main religious groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots were all different. They all had a different approach, but they were all working towards this moment. They were like, we could, if we do the right thing in our minds, we can get God to come and enact this gospel. We can get God to come and take over on earth because they were that desperate for him to move. And so this is the cultural context into which Jesus arrives. And listen to the message he comes right out of the gate with. In Mark 1, 14 to 15, he says, later on after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. He preached the gospel, this gospel, the political announcement of God coming to bring his peace and salvation, his rule and reign on earth. In verse 15, it continues, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. Believe in the king and the kingdom that is being issued on earth now. He says the very thing that the people have been hoping for. And so the question then, as we're reading through Matthew's gospel is, what happened? If everybody wants this thing, if this is what they've hung their hat on, if they're desperate for it, then why did so many people not like Jesus? Why did so many people suddenly not like the message of the gospel? Why did so many people start rallying around him and then reject him at the end? We have to contend with that tension because there's something there that speaks to our humanity as well. Jesus came declaring that the kingdom of God was here. The rule and reign of God is kicking off. And I am both the messenger and the king who is bringing that kingdom. But it doesn't come in a way that the Jews or any part of humanity understands or even expects or wants. In Matthew 20, 16, Jesus says, the last will be first and the first will be last. And that's not how any of our political systems work, ever, anywhere. It's an election year. I can guarantee you neither side 
is going to sound like Jesus because none of them are. There's no government on earth that sounds like Jesus because his government is completely upside down and different than anything else that we've ever experienced. Humans cannot create the kingdom of God. It can only be issued by God himself. We can participate in it. That's what Jesus asks us to do. But to enact it required God to come from heaven to earth to do that. And so the kingdom of God didn't come rolling into Israel with chariots or guns or bombs. I know some of those things didn't exist yet. Stick with me for the illustration. They didn't have all these bombastic speeches or super PACs and mega fundraising events and merchandise. Can you even imagine? Jesus was like rolling out. He's like, buy my shirt, please. Buy my t-shirt. Um, it came in subtle, quiet. It went to the poor and the forgotten and the lonely places. It didn't go to the center of town and roll out banners. It went where there were unhoused people or there were immigrants or there were people who could not physically be around anyone else because they had diseases like leprosy. The kingdom of God did not make an alliance with Rome, nor did it seek other political alliances to oust Rome. The kingdom of God was not actually worried about the politics of the time at all, because the kingdom of God is for humanity. It's more than just a governance, even though it's a political statement. And so Jesus comes, and Matthew 9 tells us, and he went throughout all the cities and villages in Galilee, teaching in the synagogues teaching and proclaiming the good news, the gospel, God's peace and salvation for humanity. And he demonstrated it, hear this, with healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. His words and his works reflecting his messiahship or his kingship. The kind of kingdom that the king came to create on earth was very different than anything anyone expected. His citizens, he said, if you're going to be part of my kingdom, you're required. You're required to love your enemies. There's so much in Matthew that we're like, is that a choice? And Jesus says, no. This is how my kingdom works. And if you want to be a citizen of my kingdom, you will love your enemies. You will offer radical forgiveness to the people who have wronged you, even if they're Roman. You will demonstrate unprecedented generosity to ensure that everyone has what they need. You will balance the scales to protect justice and to honor the image of God that is in quite literally every single human being that has ever been created and ever will be created on earth. You will include the excluded and find a way to bring them back to the table. That is what my kingdom looks like. And people were like, that sounds really cool if they were on the outside. But all the people on the inside were like, that's not what we wanted. We wanted you to come and make Israel great again. We wanted you to make us prominent among the nations, right? They wanted their financial independence back. Israel was always a major trading partner based on their location. But with Rome and occupation, that was compressed. They wanted the Romans gone. We want, our or we want our political independence. We want to be known as your chosen people. We want to be a major player on the national stage, they're saying. We don't want you to come and tell us that we're supposed to love the very people that we hate. 
And where's the campaign trail? Like, when is Pilate going to be gone, Jesus? What are you doing? And how dare you, how dare you begin to say that you are like God, that you are his son, that you are the king of this kingdom? We should be able to see a king who is a warrior and a politician, and, and he's, he looks the part, and you, you king from Nazareth, a town full of Gentiles with a very dodgy backstory, you certainly cannot be the Messiah that we have been waiting for. So Jesus comes revealing through his life and his words, through his whole being, that he is the king of this kingdom, and nobody really wants it because it's not the thing that they thought they needed most. And so ultimately, it's right in front of Israel's face, and they choose to hold on to bitterness and bias. They would rather live under the heavy, impossible weight of the law than accept the freedom of living under the grace that Jesus is declaring. Isn't that crazy? And then we have to remember that Israel is just a small view of us. Thanks. So easy to judge them for the way they behave in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but Israel is a picture of all of humanity apart from God which means there are moments where God says, I am offering you freedom in my kingdom, liberation, peace. But you would rather hold on to your prejudice or your bitterness, your grudges. You'd rather let your enemies rule your life than know what it means to live in the freedom that I offer. And so the Jews, just like us at times, decided to get rid of Jesus. And I had a really good time with this one this week, guys. So just stick with me before we land the plane. They didn't realize that by rejecting him, it was the key to his coronation. Right? We are not monarchists. Praise the Lord. But we've got friends who are. <laughs> and if you lived last year, which all of you did, there are no babies in this room, then you saw Chuck, as Imani puts it, or King Charles. He's got to have a number on, uh, behind his name, but I don't know what it is. But anyhow, King Charles and Queen Camilla have taken the throne of England. Um, and their coronation was, I think, what most of us would expect a coronation to be, right? There was gold and jewels and a parade. There was a crown. And that other little thing with the ball on the top, what's that called, Dan? A scepter. Well, I just kind of think those are kind of neat, if I do say so myself. And there was opulence, and there were dignitaries from all over the world, and there was celebrating, and there was honor, and there was moments of quiet esteem. And that's what you would expect a coronation to be. Even if we're not monarchists, that's sort of the trajectory of human kingdoms from the beginning, excuse me, of that time until now. And the culmination of everything God promised in the Old Testament the culmination of the good news or the gospel that God's peace and salvation was coming, that his authority, his kingdom was going to be enacted on earth as it is in heaven, was contingent on the king that he chose, the Messiah, the Savior, the new David that is hinted at throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus didn't look like the king they expected, and his coronation was most certainly not the event that they had planned for the king that they were waiting for. 
because the kingdom of God is upside down, right? We've just talked about that. It's politically other to anything we know. And so, of course, the succession of its king would be as well. In Matthew 27, I'm going to read a couple sections of text, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed, a scepter, in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And skipping to verse 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The crucifixion is Jesus' coronation. This is the very moment that he takes the throne as the king of God's kingdom. This is the moment he comes into office and moves from just being purely messenger to I am the chosen one. I've been telling you all along, and this is the moment that I will be enthroned. Jesus receives his royal robes. He receives his crown made of thorns. He gets his parade up the Via Della Rosa. He has his scepter. His throne is a wooden cross. And at the very end of it all, he gets his title. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. This is the moment that God's political announcement comes into full view that the peace and salvation of humanity has come. That God's kingdom, his rule and reign is being issued on earth as it is in heaven. Everything Jesus has been teaching, everything that is in the Old Testament is confirmed in this moment on the cross when Jesus says in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Because God's kingdom is not a power grab from the top, but from the bottom. And in the moment when Jesus is being brutally abused, when he's being murdered, his decision, his choice, his response is forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, but the continuation of a sacrificial and selfless love because he's on the cross dying for the very people who have put him there. Dying for you and I whose sins have put him there. This is the kingdom that God came to enact, and this is the king he chose. And on Easter morning, when Jesus rose from the dead, it is quite literally the dawn of a new humanity. This is a new age where Jesus has defeated death. He has defeated the consequences of sin. He has defeated the consequences of evil. And he has said, the flag is planted firmly in the ground. We'll get into another time when we'll talk about the now and the not yet, because we won't do that today. But the true king of God's kingdom has successfully not just declared the good news, but he has brought it into being. The good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. And this is why we call the gospel, or the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels. 
because they are summaries of this message. They are summaries of Jesus's life. They're bringing together, they say Jesus is the gospel enacted, right? He's not just his message, it's his whole life. It's his death, his life is death and his resurrection that has brought God's kingdom to pass. And so when we read the gospels, we're reading this message just in long form, right? We can say it in one sentence. We can summarize it as Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And then we can expand it when we look at these books and say, this is what it looks like for that gospel message to come to life. This is what it looks like enacted so that we know how to step into it. But we have to remember that these writers penned their words in direct response to Matthew 28, when Jesus says, go and tell everyone this news so that they can become my disciples. And so the sticky thing about the Gospels is they're not just Jesus's biographies. They're not just four nice books about a really great guy who like fought the man and then got killed by the man, but came back, which is the weird part that you may or may not believe. The gospel writers wrote these books to specifically convince you or persuade you that Jesus is king. They demand an answer. And you might say, well, I'm not sure yet. That's still an answer. Sometimes we'd like to live in neutral about God. We'd like to say, well, I'm not quite sure yet. And that's okay. God's not forcing you. But it's, that's still a choice. That's still an answer. He either is the king or he's not. And the question is, are we willing to surrender to the kingdom? Or would we rather hold on to our false kingdoms and all the pain that they bring us? We ask ourselves the same question that the people of Jesus's day had to ask themselves. Do I want to give up everything I expected? And follow this man, even though it's inverse of everything I know and expect God to be like? Or would I prefer to hold on to the things I'm comfortable with? My greed. My ability to be judgmental. I want to hold on to those, yeah, those grudges. I want to hold on to my finances. I don't want anybody to touch my relationships. When we are choosing to follow, Jesus, it is a choice of entire surrender to an entirely different way that we can only learn through him because humanity cannot do this apart from God. This is his kingdom. And so we're going to move into ministry time now, which is our portion at the end of the service where we respond to what God is saying to us through the worship and through the word and and all the things that have been going on. And I want to leave you with that same line in the sand that the gospel writers have left us with. If this guy, Jesus, really is coming, not just to declare that God's kingdom is here, but to enact it, where do I stand with that? Is he my king or no? If you want to stand up, if you're able, no pressure if you cannot physically stand up or shouldn't be standing up. But if you'd like to stand, we're going to invite, well, the Holy Spirit's here. We're just going to respond to him. Um, Yeah, we're just going to respond to him. So I'm going to invite him, the Holy Spirit, to move more. And we'll just see where he wants to go with this. But you've got that question in your heart. 